I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Blade Runner 2049, the 2017 film directed by Damien Villeneuve, screenplay by Hampton Bancher and Michael Green. I'm joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetas. Hi. So before we jump into Blade Runner, we have an announcement. So we're going to try a new patron-exclusive miniseries inspired by the short series that we recently did for Loki. We're calling it What We're Watching. So today, Apple released the first two episodes of their new Apple TV Plus series, Foundation. And starting next week, we'll be releasing weekly podcasts for our $5 and up patrons, where we discuss the most recent episode of Foundation. So like we did with Loki, you will be able to watch along with us week by week as we go on this journey. If you don't know much about Foundation, it's a sci-fi drama based on the book series of the same name by Isaac Asimov. The books are known as a series that is like notoriously hard to adapt, um, mm-hmm. but I'm curious to see uh, <laughs> how this latest attempt goes. It has some cool people involved. Lee Pace. Lee Pace. <laughs> Jared Harris of Mad Men and Chernobyl fame. Always mm-hmm. love him. Uh, created by Josh Friedman and David S. Goyer, who worked on the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. So, you know, there's potential here. I'm excited about it. Apple clearly threw a lot of money at it, too. So yeah, I'm excited just for the spectacle, too. So if you want to join us, head over to Patreon to sign up. Or if you're already a $2 patron, you can increase your pledge to get the foundation episodes. If people like this podcast series, we're planning on doing more limited TV series in the future. And when you upgrade to the $5 Patreon tier, you also get access to our video podcast where you can watch the team give me blank stares as I read (laughs) announcements and whatnot. Um, So yeah, so we're going to go watch the first two episodes of Foundation this weekend, have a public episode on those first two episodes next week, and moving forward, weekly podcast for our $5 patrons on Foundation Thanks for listening to all that. And now let's talk about Blade Runner 2049. So I'm really excited to talk about Blade Runner 2049. And part of it is because I it's this movie that just runs like this circle happens in my brain where I'm like, I love this movie. Do I love this movie? I don't know if I love this movie, but I think I love this movie. But do I? It just goes over and over and over. <laughs> and so it was really interesting watching it this time, because I think I'd seen it maybe once since theaters, but it's been a couple years. But I remember sitting in the theater going in being like, they're making a sequel to Blade Runner. How are you going right. to do this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And being so skeptical, but hopeful. And then like from the first moments and the first shots, just being like, oh my God, they <laughs> did it. <laughs> the music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just like the whole thing being this like crazy cinematic i mean it's a visual technical masterpiece like just mm-hmm. so much of it is so good and it ending and me being like that's one of the best theater experiences i've ever had like is this my favorite movie i don't know and then like the longer <laughs> i like sit with it the more i'm like ah, why do i feel like there's something missing like mm-hmm. there's something about this experience that didn't leave me as fulfilled as i thought i was feeling when it was happening and so i kind of have arrived at this place where i feel like this movie is sort of somehow less than the sum of its parts, but it's just that all of its parts are extraordinary, that it's still that like the average is super high, but there is just something missing in there. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with Blade Runner. And I'm really excited to hear from you guys. Trisha, I know you're another noir Blade Runner-y fan. So what are your thoughts on 
2049. Yeah, there are sections of this movie and even just like frames of this movie that are so breathtaking that they make me upset. Where I'm just like, how dare you look like that? Like, (laughs) who gave you permission to look like this and be like this, Denis Villeneuve? And like, it bowls you over with how it looks and just is for so much of it, right? The Mm -hmm. score knocks you over and the sets just, (sighs) (laughs) it's so stunning. I can't, and I also saw it in the theater, and I just remember just the the stunned silence in the theater when some of that stuff was coming up. And also just gasps, like people gasping around me, which is what Mm. this movie makes you do in places. Absolutely incredible. And I love what you just said, Michael, about feeling like there's something missing. I can't wait to get into it with you guys. (laughs) Uh, This movie is long as hell, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like like I said, sections of it are just like, they make me mad uh, with how good they are. And other sections of it, I'm just like, where am I in this movie? Like, wh- right. what is the plot? Who is anybody? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like the first time I watched it, I was like, Mackenzie Davis, who are you like what do you have to do with any of this and so many other sort of you know side characters where i'm just like i don't know and is this an indecipherable mess and i actually have a very high tolerance for that you know because that's sort of a noir (laughs) staple of the hero is going over here to talk to that guy and who knows who he is or even what he's trying even what the detective is trying to get out of this conversation i don't know part of me wonders if that's like maybe the movie's final masterstroke is leaving us <laughs> bewildered. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, lots to unpack here. But certainly it has to be one of the most gorgeous movies in the last decade, right? Like far and away. Yeah, Maybe yeah. it's the most gorgeous movie. Yeah. Oh, thank God they finally gave yeah. him his Oscar for this. Like, <laughs> right. Thank yeah. God. Like, mm-hmm. What more can I give you? <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you want from me? Yeah. If you don't <laughs> win the Oscar for this, like, good God. Right. So truly. Anyway, uh, yeah. Let's go, man. Let's do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I'm on the same boat. Okay. Page and in the same boat. <laughs> Metaphors yeah. mixed. Righted. Brian. Interlinked cells. What? Cells. Uh, yeah, I, I am a huge Blade Runner fan, and I was very interested in in just any more Blade Runner content because it's not. It's not something where I'm so protective of it, like from a mm-hmm. childhood thing where I'm like, it better be good. I'm just like, I like this world. And I just want to see more of kind of anything in it. I really like the the short films when they came out that came along with these two were directed by Luke Scott and one was directed by um, Watanabe, who was uh, one of the Cowboy Bebop people. It was an anime one and uh, just was like, yes, I love this sort of Star Wars-y Coruscant, uh, you know, <laughs> most likely cantina kind of gritty feel that's just my my aesthetic like whatever blade runner and seven are is my aesthetic which is <laughs> says whatever it says about me so gross and oppressive just but gross beautiful. and rainy and <laughs> dark beautiful. and yeah sure. funny thing is my relationship with Denis Villeneuve has been I've liked all of his movies that I've seen but they always have me feeling like it was a little long and a little meandery and I kind of didn't maybe have quite the experience I was hoping to. It didn't quite get there for me, but like also I really, really liked it and so beautiful to look at. But then I was like, that's so perfect for Blade Runner. Like that's mm-hmm. exactly what, what you want from a Blade Runner movie. It's like, just make it 10 hours long. Who cares? Just like wander, <laughs> show me the scenes. Like just, just we talk about um, 
efficient screenwriting and efficient filmmaking, you know, like we're seeing this happen while we're also like finding out about this. Right. And that is not what nope. Geneva Love is interested in. It's here's this scene and then we're going to show you the, the, the trip to the next location, but the music is going to kick ass and the scenery is going to be <laughs> like the best stuff ever put on film. And you're going to have an amazing time. And it's almost like a movie I, I don't want to watch again soon, but I also want to just put on all day right like i want to just like have it on repeat just in the room somewhere because i just want to like feel it Rewatching it I, I think there are some things i was maybe disappointed by the first time were just what i wanted from a blade runner sequel but then mm. rewatching it knowing what the movie was and having a better being able to grasp the plot a little bit more i was able to see like okay everything is connected i see how all of these characters are all like the first scene is setting up the entire movie and everything is sort of like a result of that and first time through you maybe don't quite catch what what exactly is going on what was the box who's the what you know mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah uh that's that's it i have a lot of thoughts about why i think it's the way to do a sequel 20 years later which mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. have not nailed and uh, we can get into that later but overall big fan of the movie. Awesome. Yeah. The thing that you said, Bri, about just having it on, you know, where it's just like, you sort of want to just have it on so you can look at it. Mm-hmm. I feel like this would be the ultimate movie to show at like a Best Buy to d- show how awesome right. your TVs yeah. are. Right. Like, which obviously it's just, it's also, you should sit down and watch it and experience it and all of the things that we're talking about. Of course. But if you're trying to sell a TV, also, Blade Runner 2049. They're like, my TV has never looked better than some of the shots in this Truly. movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When I went through a very complicated uh, and messy period <laughs> of my life where I was auditioning televisions to keep wow. the, the thing that I used <laughs> yeah. to test each one was my 4K Blade Runner 2049 Blu-ray. A lot of like FedEx and UPS delivery people we're coming to deliver and then take away televisions from Michael's apartment. This is the well, most Michael thing I've ever heard. I know. Michael be like, please wait for 45 minutes and then I'll tell <laughs> yeah. you whether or not you're this. I'm refusing this package. Right. Just stay here. Wait yeah. outside. Yeah. yeah. This is, it's a fun anecdote. We'll, we'll talk about it at some point, but yes, okay. 100% all, all of those things. It's just technically amazing. Okay. Well, Alex talk about Blade Runner. Yeah. I mean, Brian, you, you put it really well where you're talking about, you know, what does Denis Villeneuve do? as a director in a lot of his films and he does take his time and he has these kind of mood establishing shots where you're not really sure where the film's even going anymore, but you're just in a mood and a place. And because of that, he is so perfect to pair with Blade Runner because the first movie it's, you know, I, I have some critiques of this movie, but there are a lot of the same critiques I would have of the first film, <laughs> you know, and, and the first film, I don't know what's happening half the time. And I'm disoriented and confused about why we're in this building now and who's chasing who and like why anything's happening. So in a weird way, this, he did this kind of crazy trick of both updating the world of Blade Runner and creating a movie that I think is more like understandable on the first watch through and does have more to hold on to. I remember the first time I saw Blade Runner, I, you know, it was just such a disorienting experience. I didn't even know what they were talking about in most of the scenes. Like it really took multiple viewings to just start to like sink into it and really love it. The original, you're saying? The original Blade <laughs> yeah. Runner. Mm-hmm. And in 2049, I think on the first viewing, I could follow much of the main story, but it put me into the same state that the first movie put me into often, which is like kind of a malaise, kind of a wandering 
confusion and like sleepiness <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know so it's like in, the, in that way michael and i were talking about after seeing it for the first time it was like that's a really like, it really honors the, the, the spirit of the original mm-hmm. in that way where it, it's not a crowd pleaser in the way that the first one wasn't a crowd pleaser it kind of dares to just be indulgent and mm-hmm. just wander for a bit and just like you know i feel like denia is like look how amazing this set is look how amazing Roger Deakins is. Right. Did you just want to look at this for like five minutes with nobody <laughs> saying anything and nothing happening? You just watch Ryan Gosling slowly walk through this. Right. Set. Like, don't you want to watch an actor walk as slow as possible for <laughs> the next 10 minutes? Yes, I do. I kind of do. Yeah. I do. Like, I do, but like, also, I don't. And I am also like frustrated. So that's where I have a really interesting relationship with this movie where I have the same process as you, Michael, where I definitely like for the first, at least like third or half of this movie, I'm like, why did i not remember this is my favorite movie of all time like this is mm-hmm. everything is working it looks amazing like all like firing on all cylinders it has a great balance of momentum but also like a deliberate pace and just doing all the f- most filmy cinematic things you could possibly do and then the second half it puts me more into that original blade runner territory which once again i think is interesting and kind of cool that he somehow did that but it made me kind of sad because it's like the first half of the movie to me is what I would want from Blade Runner sequel, which is you've brought this world to everybody. Like everybody can now enjoy this world and you're still honoring its spirit somehow while telling me a story with momentum. I I can comprehend the most important things about why characters are doing what they're doing. And the second half almost like backslides or maybe intentionally forward slides into a territory that feels more like the original film. It makes me a little bit sad because it's like, oh, this is almost a, just a new updated vision for Blade Runner that can that I can show to anybody and be like, this is the best sci-fi movie ever. Mm. But then it doesn't let me do that because it's like the <laughs> second half is difficult. You know, it is a difficult. Mm-hmm. There's long slogs you have to get through. And if you're not down to just luxuriate in it, it it's a it's a hard sell for some people. That's so interesting because I, I feel like I had the opposite experience this time, which was mm. because, you know, there are movies that you that you love that aren't necessarily fast paced and entertaining and fun. And I was watching the first hour or so of this movie going, yeah, maybe that's my only issue with this movie is it's just not super entertaining to watch. Like regardless, it's not only long, it's also slow paced. And those are two different things. And this movie is both of those things. But then around the middle of the movie, maybe a little later, maybe like not until Vegas, but there's a certain point at which I'm like, okay, now I feel like everything we've done up until this point can now start paying off. Boom, 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 boom. And it's, it's, there's some movies where once we're getting into the third act, it just feels like, like, all right, I kind of know what's going to happen. And now we're just watching it happen. Uh, but this is a movie where I'm just like, oh, no, it, things are like getting the momentum is building. And I feel like I'm like we're getting somewhere and I'm just excited about every scene. And that's also as a big fan of the first where I'm like, I want to watch Harrison Ford, like actually act his ass off and, you know, play Deckard again and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, it's almost a movie where I feel like the first hour or so is the homework you have to do to then like have fun with the rest of it. So that was kind of how it felt for me and not bad homework, obviously, but just like, I I just felt myself being more engaged and entertained in the second half this time. Interesting. Tons of things to talk about, but since we're here, yeah, making a sequel to a movie 30 years later. And like we're kind of talking about, it does 
capture this mood tone pacing of the original Blade Runner, where if you're doing efficient storytelling and you know what's happening, you're doing it wrong, right? So this movie (laughs) checks those boxes. (laughs) And it's interesting because I tend to be more like Alex as far as like which part I enjoy or at least that I remembered enjoying. This time I did enjoy the second half a lot more and I think I was more prepared for it. And uh, the first half is more the one that I'll like put on scenes and watch cuz they're pretty. Right. And so I know that half more. But I think what's interesting and this was something that I had trouble with the first time too is that the second half and kind of going into the third act is where Deckard shows up and it feels like the movie kind of has to stop and set up some things and be Mm -hmm. like, now it's a movie with Deckard in it. And we got to bring him in and then make sure he's got stuff to do because we're also going to try to wrap up his storyline. And it comes so late in the movie, I forget that it's coming. and And I think that's kind of cool. And I wish I had seen it not having seen the trailer or any marketing that was just like, yo, you're going to be in an orange place where Harrison Ford is going to show up. Like you can't erase that from your brain. And so I think it's an interesting decision that each time I watch it, it affects me slightly differently. Yeah, I had the same, sorry, real quick, but like I had the same thing of, ooh, by that point, I was, the first time through, I'm like, when is Deckard going to show up? You know, and it took so long because that was what the trailer was. Obviously, you're bringing back a character. But now watching it, knowing he wasn't going to show up till it was a while, very late in, I also forgot it was happening. And I was just like, oh, I'm I'm now watching the story about Kay. And that's good because that's doing a functional thing there where it's like, you better care more about Kay. If we introduce Deckard too early, then it's the Deckard show. But now I care so much about Kay. Deckard is just like a nice little cherry on top. I think this movie has a little bit of a premise problem. Mm. Because the first Blade Runner, you know, you get the opening text that explains to you what the hell a Blade Runner is. You're like, cool, great, got it. And then the opening text tells you, I believe it is in, in the original Blade Runner, it tells you, Hey, or it's like very early on. Hey, these androids escaped. They're here. There's three of them. Go get them, mm-hmm. basically. And here's what they look like. Or there's four of them originally, right? I think Brian, in the when we were talking about the original Blade Runner on the podcast, you pointed out it's nice to have a countdown, right? Where it's just like mm. things. It's like a really simple thing ultimately that we can yep. kind of hang on to. Where it's like Horcruxes, evil exes, like just being able to count <laughs> yeah. things down. Yeah, whatever it is, just. Just have a countdown of like, you got to get them all. And this is how many there are. And so we can just track with that. And this movie struggles in that sense, because the opening scene is genius and brilliant. I love Dave Bautista. I love his tiny glasses. I love everything (laughs) about him. He rules. But it's presumably Kay at his regular everyday job. Sure. And there's presumably nothing really special about this. And then he finds a box. It takes a while for us to figure out there's bones in the box. It takes a while for us to figure out that the bones in the box were an android that had a baby and that's significant for reasons. Reasons. (laughs) Robin Wright tells us multiple times that it's going to break the world. Right. What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Literally? Like, I'm okay. She tries to convey the stakes as best as she can, but they're very unclear. And then she sends Kay on an assignment that is very unclear. Like, there's a child, go find it and kill it. How old is it now? Is it a boy or a girl? 
where might it be? And there's there's so many questions that there's just not enough information, I think, embedded in the inciting incident, if you will, or in the premise itself to help us track with it. And as I mentioned, there's a little bit of a stakes mm-hmm. problem too. Like we don't really know. We don't really need to know in the original Blade Runner what the stakes are for Deckard. It's just like, it's his job. Go get these guys. Although I think that scene with M.M. at Walsh is like, hey, you're- It's not his job anymore. He said, no no choice, pal. No choice, pal. And you're <laughs> like, okay, great. Now he's on the line. Yeah. The premise isn't very neat. And it isn't very clear. And- it kind of leaves us with that lack of momentum that I think we're talking about from the opening scene, to be honest. Like, mm-hmm. once Dave Bautista and his tiny glasses are gone, I'm just a little bit bewildered about why I care about this box of bones or care about Kay, even really. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you guys think? For me, it's interesting because I think there is enough in the first half of just discovering the world or rediscovering the world you know like when he's Mm. arriving in LA I'm just excited to see the updated the updated version of LA and Mm -hmm. uh, I'm intrigued by his AI girlfriend like what are the rules of this how does this work and so there's enough like world building world introduction stuff happening that I don't really need to know the question right away like the woman in the box and I think we do find out pretty quickly that it's this, this kind of like anomaly of a replicant who you know, had a child. So for me, like the movie buys some time just because I'm personally interested in the world and mm. excited. I think that's fair. With each introduction of like, now we see LA, now we see Robin Wright, now we see his like testing protocol to like find his baseline. If I can follow what's happening, the movie does usually have at least like a question he's pursuing or a thing he's going after from that point on. And so even if it's like that noir detective thing where you're not you're not quite sure why he's arrived at this place right now or like who he's talking to i do have a sense that like there is a problem for somebody like robin wright who has this very very deep concern about replicant babies (laughs) basically you know there is a problem there's this child out there that's going to break the world your job as a detective is to hunt down this child Mm. and so even if i don't know why you know a k is doing something in particular i know it's like i'm following that thread and i think it's when you know around the midpoint when the movie shifts towards you know, Kay believes that he is the child. Right. That's an exciting twist and it's an exciting midpoint that that feels like it's going to send us into high gear. You know, and there's even like a moment where a music coup comes up where he's like lied to Robin Wright about killing the child. Mm-hmm. And he's like popping his collar and like walking <laughs> away from his car. And it's like, all right, now we're on the run. And then it's like, no, like slow overlapping <laughs> sex scene coming up now. And then <laughs> oh, like, yeah. has anyone ever seen the movie Her? I have. Yeah. <laughs> like slow walking through orange Vegas for many, many minutes now. Like, like it's, it's just a weird for mm-hmm. me. It was weird because like the whole first half of the movie felt like it was building to this midpoint turn. And like, now we're off. And then it was like, that was the moment that the brakes were pushed, you know, at least pacing wise. Huh. Interesting. That, that's, that's, that's my experience of why the first half works and why the second half starts to feel like you just earned like, you know, ex- an explosive second half where he's on the run because he's the child. And and then it just like, whoa, slows down. <laughs> <laughs>
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think for me, the bones and all that stuff, almost like I was waiting for that to be pre-information that then sets up the inciting incident where the story really kicks into gear. And I guess technically it is, because I feel like for me, the inciting incident for Kay, like when suddenly things are like really different is like when he finds the the horse, the wooden horse right. or, or like with a birthday on it and realizes that his memory is connected to all of this. Like he's part of this whole thing. Like, I feel like that's when those questions start to arise and kind of like you're talking about Alex, where it's like the plot momentum kicks in, but that's 45, 50 minutes into the movie. Mm, right. And I think the other problem that I have is this movie more than the original raises a lot of questions in my brain about what are replicants. Right. They skirt around it. And yeah. yeah, you don't need to know like you just got to know that they're like they're human ish but they're not and like we're just going to talk about lots of big ideas and they're are they robots but they're like definitely fleshy and don't seem to be robots right. yeah, but they yeah. can do backflips yeah. really fast right <laughs> like i feel like that it's more vague and abstract is fine in that one in this one the plot hinges on right i feel like me understanding harrison ford could have sex with a replicant and create a child so they're not robots. They're <laughs> some kind of biological. Are they clones? But they have superhuman abilities. Why are they so hard to get? It just opens this kind of like Pandora's box of questions that I think for me haunt a little bit of the goings on where I'm trying to understand the rules of this universe and why it's crazy that a replicant and a human could conceive a child or two replicants. Yeah. Right. Slash and, or that it's possible or like whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that that's sort of an unfortunate piece of this movie that it's, it is like central to the plot. Some of those questions, but also central to the plot are like a lot of other things about replicant will, Mm. right. Where it's like, Old replicants don't obey and they run away and hide, but new replicants are obedient. And so it's like, do they have will then? Like, till they're not also? Until, yeah, until they decide not to be. Like, uh, and the question really arises for me when I'm thinking about the character of love Mm. because she seems really vindictive. Um, Like, when we first meet her, she seems very cold and like maybe the perfect you know, cold, sort of obedient, you know, hard-edged, but obedient replicant. That that makes sense. Like, oh, yes, of course, the creator of these replicants for his own would make like the most obedient, you know, stilted robotic version of a replicant. And that's how she comes across at first. But then she just becomes like a super villain and like very vindictive <laughs> and has like a lot of personal feelings. It's the scene where she kills Robin Wright's character where she's like, I'm going to tell him that you tried to kill me first. And that's why I had to kill you. And I'm like, are you a person? Again, the replicant will question, I feel like is a really big question in this. Yeah. That it never sort of gets into. Yeah. It's interesting. And 
watching the behind the scenes, Sylvia Hoax, Hex, however you say her last name, who is amazing. She's amazing in this. She is amazing. She's yeah. talking about her conceptualization of love as being kind of like a 12-year-old adolescent mm. mentally. And so charged with all these responsibilities, but having the emotional depth of, you know, an adolescent. And so that's interesting. One of those things that I wish was in the text more, because I feel like that mm-hmm. does inform a lot of those outbursts that she has. Agreed. Which, so anyway, I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. In terms of the the actual history of the the world, my understanding is, you know, Tyrell made sloppy replicants and then he was making better ones, you know, uh, is Deckard one question mark of the, you know, not for your life, for your lifespan ones. But then he did make them able to procreate. And that's what Neander Wallace says when he says like, that's the only secret he took to the grave with them or whatever. But then Neander Wallace says, I know how to make them so that they never disobey. I've made the perfect thing. Look at my, you know, creepy eyes kind of thing. <laughs> but then what we are starting to see in this movie is like the actual timeline. If you watch the short films is like 2036, I think is when Wallace has made his new replicant and is sort of getting it approved um, to, to go out in the masses. So basically I think the idea is that we've seen 15 years of what seems like perfect AI that does everything we tell it to. Mm. But then what we're seeing in this movie with both love and K is that little sort of more nuanced. It's not just like, I'm going to go crazy and kill everyone like the first movie. It's sort of this more nuanced, I think with love in that scene with Robin Wright, which it's, I am going to still do my job and everything, but I'm, I, I can lie. I can actually do this thing. And then K who like, he's not going on some crazy riot to, to take down the matrix or something like that. He's like, no, I just now have a, interest that is you know takes me away from my baseline as, as robin wright would say like i now have an interest that is beyond my my duty that i'm supposed to be doing day to day so it's it's not simple you know <laughs> but i think that there is uh that there is sort of an interesting thing going on there where it's sort of like free will being a nuanced thing and not just this thing where once it happens like all hell breaks loose mm-hmm I do think the movie has kind of an internal mushy logic and consistency, even if it's not clear to us like what that is. <laughs> and it's mushy. It's mushy. Yeah, it's very mushy. Like the original. Yeah, yeah fair. Yeah. But yeah, once again, it, it, it feels honest to the original vision in some ways, which I don't think that didn't bother either to explain to me what a replicant was clearly. Yeah. And what their deal is and, you know, why are they feeling things they're not supposed to feel and why they're rebelling like. They do bring up explicitly in the movie the idea of a soul. And, you know, that Robin mm-hmm. Wright has that great... You've been getting on fine without one. Yeah. yeah. Dot, 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 what? Dot, dot, dot. A soul. Yeah. The way she delivers that line is just so harsh yeah. and perfect. Mm-hmm. I think there is the question raised of if you manufacture a being. Like, I don't know if they're partially synthetic at all or just entirely organic. Whatever. They're manufactured. They weren't born out of, like, a body. Then, like, I think there's an assumption in this universe in this culture of this universe that anything that's been manufactured doesn't have a soul. They're just like a rep. They're a replica of a real living thing. Real living things are born. And so that I think, so I do, I do understand the internal logic of this movie is basically in this universe. If you're manufactured, you're one thing. If you're born, you're another thing. What does it mean when maybe you're born of something that's manufactured? Yeah. A manufactured thing can give birth. Then that breaks our ability to have slaves, you know, because if, if, if the reason you can have a massive slave labor force that's on the nine you know, colony planets is because the population can all agree, oh, these are not real people. These are mm-hmm. imitations of people. The fact that they can give birth 
is potentially fracturing of that narrative. Like, I also like kind of hard sci-fi rules and clean, you know, like nerdy stuff to pick apart. But in the mushy world of Blade Runner, I do think that the movie at least is consistent. And I don't think anything in this movie, like, contradicts something else. But it's also wide open to interpretation. So it kind of is a get out of jail free card in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, which is that it's not... At the end of the day, like, you don't actually need to know any of that to be invested in, like, whether or not Kay can find this child, basically. You can kind of just go along for the ride, and that's sort of, like, the mood, right? Like, plenty of movies, and I respect the hell out of them if they can do it well, and I think this movie does it really well. Plenty of movies are just, like, they take, like, a paintbrush full of mood. And they just like (laughs) paint it right over some of the plot and character stuff. And (laughs) honestly, like, again, if you do it really well and you do it as visually and creatively and beautifully as this movie does it, then at the end of the day, it almost feels like nitpicking, right? To be mad about some of this other stuff. Right, right. Totally. Yeah. No, for sure. I'm kind of realizing that that's kind of where we're landed is like, what are the things that like kind of, because everything else is just amazing and gorgeous. (laughs) Yeah. It is interesting, you guys just said it, and as soon as you said it, I was like, oh yeah, duh. But for some reason, Harrison Ford's character still being around, Deckard being around, completely nullified for me that he could be a replicant. But I'm now realizing, obviously, there are replicants that get older in this movie. Right. It means he's not a Nexus 6, not that he's not a replicant. Right. And so like that's such an obvious part of the story I'm now realizing. But I think because... Robin Wright was going so hard on like, there's a wall that divides this and that. And like, this could bring it down. I was like, that must mean that like, maybe humans and replicants can like have children together. And then they're not really anyway. So just interesting that that's where my brain went Mm. for all of that. I will say an interesting detail I noticed watching the Vegas sequence this time was that when the people from the Wallace Corporation come to abduct Deckard, they're all wearing masks except for love. And like they, they need like radiation or like mm-hmm. air filtering masks. Oh, interesting. Guess who else is not wearing a mask in that setting is both Harrison Ford and, mm-hmm. and uh, Deckard. both Deckard and Kay. So it, that, that was an interesting touch of like, this is the place where nobody can go because it's radiation, dirty bomb aftermath. Harrison Ford has been living there for 30 years. Like, hmm. Right. With, they, his that, yeah. with his, his dog. With his dog. Yeah. Right. Which, which it implies that I think, yeah he's not entirely human if if he's able to just like not be sick with cancer at this point uh, yeah. living in that environment since we're talking about mood i wanted to bring up kind of i was tracking like why does this feel so much like blade runner when it doesn't really look anything like blade runner and mm. like in terms of the way it's done and you know i think it sort of does on a very technical surface level, it sort of does the same as the Star Wars prequels, where the original Star Wars trilogy has this very used future look and everything feels sort of tangible and, and gritty and everything. And then the prequels are so shiny and so CG and so sleek and slick and other words that have those consonants. <laughs> <laughs> but I think ultimately... The biggest difference there is that like the aesthetic and the spirit of the original trilogy doesn't sort of feel like it feels not quite there or not quite right. And I think that's the thing that's so frustrating to people. And 2049 does a similar thing where Blade Runner is very is so dirty and gritty and, and used future. And 2049 is very sleek and slick and sluck. <laughs> but every aesthetic, every mood thing about this movie feels like the original 
So mm. you've got the music, which doesn't have 80s synths in it that make it feel like it's trying to be an 80s thing, but the music feels so correct, right? It feels yeah. like this is the 2017 version of the original Blade Runner score. And then you have things like cyberpunk streets in the rain, flying cars through enormous foggy landscapes of just crazy buildings, the colors like the blacks and the orangey browns, like everything down to just the color palette of this movie feels like it is mm -hmm. calling back to the original. The people emerging from shadows into the lights, you know, thematic stuff like existential pontification. Do I exist? What am I? A detective tracking things through a seedy underbelly, light just coming through windows. And, you know, it's just like, and, and I think ultimately it's also that it doesn't feel like a 2017 movie. It's not that it's, it just feels like a movie from no year, which helps mm -hmm. it feel mm -hmm. sort of timeless and stuff. But it's just like for a movie that they didn't try to mimic the original in any way on a technical level by which I just mean like the way it's shot and the way it, that kind of stuff they didn't try to go back and do the yeah Force Awakens or Mandalorian thing where we're like oh we're going to try to actually capture this this mood right but they just took every aesthetic and said what is the current version of this aesthetic and that's why this stands to me as the only years later sequel that really just Force Awakens is maybe close but in terms of just really capturing what did the original feel like? This, I think, is just the one that knocks out of the park 100%. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think why, to me, it is the best example of how you, you know, bring back of like a classic franchise from 30 years ago is what you're talking about, Brian, where it doesn't feel like it's just trying to do a carbon copy. It's also not doing a prequel thing where it's like almost starting from scratch with kind of a totally different look and vibe. It's amazing the I think the care that went into every aspect of the production of just like, how do we evolve this world from the world we got introduced to in 1982? There was a choice made early on by Denis Villeneuve to not have this be a reimagining of the world based on what we know now about, you know, our current technology and our current world, it is an evolution of an alternate reality. You know, the alternate mm -hmm. reality of the 2019 in the first Blade Runner film. This is the evolution of that. And that evolution is happening in production design. The evolution is happening in the, the technology of the world. But then it's happening on a meta level with giving Roger Deakins the latitude to say like, mm -hmm. oh, I want to feel like I felt in that first movie, but you be you. And like, what? Right. How, like, what's your palette of like how you capture a mood and how you make us feel a certain way? Don't try to just copy the exact way the first film looked. Like, let's make a Roger Deakins movie that is a Blade Runner movie. Um, and I think that's also smart because I, I, I do get very weary of reboot movies where it is either just, yeah, totally abandons the spirit of the original or it tries to do a carbon copy in modern day which is like but now we're here like we're like we talk about indiana jones and the crystal skull on patreon and like that movie felt off because in some ways it was trying to do these like 80s things in the 2010s and it's like this is not like we're past that era like so what, what's what's the evolution of this franchise to this moment that we're in now and i think blade runner is the best example i've seen of like a real evolution that is consistent to the original universe but isn't just throwback carbon copy like lazy yeah one of the biggest and best things that this movie does is echo all of that or just like really achieve that sort of imperative of like update but get the mood get the feeling capture the spirit of the original 
in the production design. The production design of the original has these huge sets, these huge rooms. I'm thinking about the Tyrell Corporation, like Mm -hmm. not just the exterior, but the interior spaces within there. And then thinking here about the Wallace Corporation and like all of those, just the vastness of that building and that what that room feels like, the various rooms of the Wallace Corporation, what they feel like. And then you have with that, the contrast. So that's like where the richest of the rich live in this incredibly clean, empty, enormous, what a waste of space. (laughs) Right. (laughs) She's like, wow, this room is the size of a football stadium and there's a chair in here. Yeah. (laughs) Mostly water. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Steps that are just, you know, incredible width of like a whole house. So gorgeous, right? But that's the strong juxtaposition with, you know, think about Kay going up his stairs mm-hmm. in his, like, where people are just standing around. Like, what is everybody mm-hmm. doing in his building? They're just standing in the hallways. Um, and everything is just dirty and garbage. Everyone's out in the elements. It's just mud and rain all the time. And that's exactly what the original does. And then they just sort of take it. And the architecture doesn't look the same. There's been a natural evolution Mm -hmm. of the architectural style that you could easily imagine like, oh, well, you know, 2019, here we go. Here's 2049. It looks different, but it captures, again, the class sort of themes that are at the heart of this, which is rich people live a certain way. Poor people live in the worst world imaginable, right? In this orphanage that's just packed, like a sea of children's faces. The scene where, yeah, he's out there at the orphanage and he's like the orphanage director. I feel like that's a kind word for whoever that guy is. Uh, (laughs) Slave master? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, is basically like, you want a kid? I got all kinds. And like thousands of children stand up, right? It's exactly that. And and as opposed to like, you know, a huge empty room with only love standing in it, right? Or something like that. So uh, really, really fascinating and just incredibly well done. There's a reason why this was nominated for an Oscar for production design. Mm-hmm. You know, just to point to what you're saying about the yeah, the class division and like, you know, the slave labor, it reminded me of Children of Men. And oh, yeah, I remember in one of the behind the scenes of Children of Men, somebody was saying it's a movie that's showing you what's already happening, but like makes it more real because it's like in a sci fi dystopia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking where it's like he's talking about the kids. He's like, oh, yeah, we need these metals for like our spaceships or like, you know, need all this nickel or chromium or something it was like oh yeah like rare earth metals we need for all of our phones and all our Mm. devices like somebody's getting that for us somewhere Mm. um so yeah just very smart i think to give us a dystopia that's showing oh wait this is already happening somewhere that we just don't see right it's not a leap Mm -hmm. right right just to like highlight and reiterate everything you guys are saying what what is so impressive about this movie and i think what i will forever celebrate this movie for is it takes so much bravery and kind of just like a leap of faith. I feel like as a creative person to look at a classic loved piece of history, cultural history and say, we're going to do another one. We're not going to copy and paste it, Mm -hmm. but we're not going to like do something radically different either. We're going to, dissect it and get at the core things that made it that provided the foundation upon which that was built latch onto those and then extrapolate that into the now and arrive at the perfect blend of modern techniques and old techniques to like do justice to all of that like that's 
a crazy thing to try to do. And so I understand why so many people haven't even aimed for that and why it's easier to go, you know, soft reboot, Force Awakens. It's new, but it's the same again. Like, well, it'll be fine. It'll be fun. But to try (laughs) to do that requires such a leap of faith, but also just such a commitment and love and reverence for the source material. You feel that in the final thing and you can, in all the behind the scenes, it's very clear that everybody working on this at the top of their game and also loved the source material and what what they were trying to achieve with it. Thinking more about what some of the bold, most bold choices that were made here, thinking more about the sequence in Vegas as being probably the most dramatically different, I think, than the original Blade Runner. I think everything Mm -hmm. in that sequence is doesn't in any way feel like it's rooted as strongly in the original, it feels like Denis Villeneuve was like, okay, we're going to go somewhere else now. Mm-hmm, um, right. Which the original never goes anywhere else. There's nowhere to go. It doesn't even go to daytime in the no, original. It, no, right. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the theatrical cut, which takes the shining footage. of, So you see them like driving through. Oh, yeah. 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 Boo. Yeah. But yeah, expanding the scope of the world to a different city is a really bold move. And then again, totally reimagining what that city might be. And not just, I love the ruins. The ruins are, you know, really haunting and everything. And they feel apocalyptic. I wouldn't say they feel Blade Runner necessarily, though. And I think it's, you know, pulling in this idea of like the climate is a thing. There's a dust storm and there's, you know, nuclear fallout, I guess, but there's some kind of like natural disaster or something that happened, which also doesn't necessarily feel Blade Runner, right? It's like everything in Blade Runner, the original feels man-made. Right. And the idea that like nature did something is not really like part of the original Blade Runner, but I think it all really works. And I think the reason it, one of the reasons it works for me from a character standpoint is because of what I was saying earlier about how when you're in an urban setting, and that's, this is the whole thing about noir more broadly, but when you're in an urban setting, there's people everywhere. Space is at a premium. There's no big empty spaces, only for the rich. Only the rich can afford empty space. And what Harrison Ford's character Deckard has achieved by moving into a nuclear fallout zone is he's now living a life of luxury, like a posh life. Mm -hmm. Right. All the booze in the world. So much whiskey. (laughs) Compare Deckard's apartment from the original to his new digs at this hotel Mm. in, you know, the fallout of Las Vegas. And he has freed himself from the original world that he was in, which was an oppressive place for him. And so even though it definitely is the most sort of out there, literally out there sequence in the movie, I think it works for that reason because it gives us a respite and it fulfills like a character thing for Deckard in a big way. Yeah. And to, you know, you're, you're bringing up the environmental things. I feel like that's mm. another smart updating of things where like totally. the right. dystopia of Blade Runner was like fears from the late 70s, early 80s of like, if we keep going down this path, what could happen? And I feel like this is all the climate stuff is obviously very of our time. The wall to keep the ocean back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But also weaves nicely into this world of like, they had 
to build LA like this because of all these things we see there, you know, there are these massive solar farms. And so they figured some out, but like this seawater needs a huge wall. Like you were just saying, Alex, to keep us. So I feel like it managed to take modern day fears and concerns and weave it into the DNA of the old world in a way that to me feels very coherent and like it plugs in very nicely. Yeah. Even in like the opening titles, like the origin story of, Wallace becoming like the world's most powerful man is like global famine caused right I would imagine by some kind of climate catastrophe so the backstory of this time in the world is very connected to climate or you know food scarcity or all these kind of issues that weren't really top of mind in the first Blade Runner yeah and the updating of the technology is a really huge piece of this with Amade Armas's character Joy and it's like well we have replicants but what's also like technology that we kind of have that's being developed that could be an extension of this, yeah, our digital sort of world that we are living in and that they were living in in the original Blade Runner. And so updating that into like, well, now we have a holographic character, a holographic girlfriend who lives in your house, but also in a pen-sized object. <laughs> yeah, how does that how does that work, Maria? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know, but it is. It's that exact translation of like, we're going to we're gonna advance the technology within the logic of the story world mm-hmm. so that we have this new thing. So it's, it's doing something new while borrowing from something that was in the original source material. I'm glad you brought up Joy because I feel like the mm. last thing I want to make sure we talk about is Kay's arc and mm-hmm. just kind of like what the movie is about. And I feel like I have an interesting relationship to him and with him as the story goes, where in the first, you know, 45 minutes, I'm like fine with him, but don't feel like super duper attached to him. But then there is, you know, as he starts to uncover, maybe I am this child that is both the most meaningful thing that might have ever happened, but could also spell doom for me. Like for some reason, I get really wrapped up in like the mind, you know, craziness that he must be experiencing. And I know a lot of people tune out when he's like arrives at the furnace and walks for a long time to open the door to find (laughs) the thing. It's one of the early like long walking shots. Yeah, Yeah. right. I was like super into that moment of like, oh, wow. Like how crazy would that be if you had this memory for 30 years of this thing that you should assume is fake but now the world has just confirmed that it's real. Like that would like totally, I was completely with him every step of that walk. And I feel like the filmmaking was like totally great there. But by the end and by the time he's with Deckard, I feel like I am kind of tuning out and falling back and kind of even the reveal of, you know, it's not him. It's the girl that he met earlier. Like by the end, I'm sort of like all these people that he's met along the way are way more interesting than him. Hmm. Hmm. I think some of that is interesting, uh, you know, to see this greater world through the perspective of an average Joe. No. <laughs> yeah. Michael. I mean, I well, mean, they are the one I, that I know, they he wanted know. to be named Joe. <laughs> but, you know, the original Blade Runner is sort of that, right? You have Deckard who's like, I'm just a cop. I'm just like, I'm here to do my job. But through his job, we're sort of seeing replicants. And what does it mean to be alive and tears in the rain like he bumps against all of that but he's kind of the anchor point for it and i feel like in this one there's a little bit of that with k but by the end i feel less tethered to him and that his perspective doesn't offer 
as much as I would want in terms of like meaning on everybody else to like to the point where by the end it's like all these cool replicants and like the woman you saw earlier, they're like getting ready to start a revolution. And I'm like, oh, cool. Are we going to watch that movie now? Mm-hmm. No, we're going to watch a car crash and people drown in the rain. And it's going to look pretty it's really cool, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. But it, it feels like to me, like it, it dropped all of the, the biggest thematic like craziness of like, oh, there's this huge other thing that you can be a part of. But then the finale is I'm going to save Harrison Ford. So he can meet his daughter. So like, you know, he's got the thing to die for is the thing that can make us the most human, right? Like dying for the right thing. So there's that. But like, you know, it's not taking down Wallace. Like you said, Brian, it's not I'm going to go destroy the Matrix. It is this very uh, small, focused, intimate thing, which I think is right for Blade Runner. But I feel like they go just far enough out before that, that I stop caring about the intimate stuff. Mm. as much so yeah what do you guys think about all of that i have a few thoughts there's there's so much there because k's arc is really interesting it feels subversive in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. you know it's playing on the audience's expectations that you know ryan gosling is the star of this movie it's gonna ultimately be about him he's gonna be the chosen one he's gonna be harry potter like right. it's, it's what we all expect by the way if you need an actor who you're not sure if he's human or a robot Ryan Gosling's your man. This is my favorite Ryan Gosling performance Mm. for sure. Good casting. He's well suited to the yeah the character of Kay, who's who's that kind of flat affect. Yep. You know when he when he shows emotion, it's very subtle and very. But there's a lot going on inside. (laughs) Behind, yeah. Or so we assume as the audience. (laughs) Sure. It's the the Kuleshov effect. You just show us Ryan Gosling's face (laughs) and then show us something sad. And we'll be like, look how sad he is inside. Totally. It's a really interesting choice to do the subversive story where essentially it's like, no, no, no. You actually weren't the center of the story the whole time. You thought you were. Mm -hmm. You're actually maybe just a soldier in this larger cause. I love what that woman who's leading the replicants, she says, is like, we all wish we were born mm-hmm. we all wish we could have been this child we're not but we're, we're, we're kind of all soldiers in this bigger cause now and it's interesting because there seems to be this like the kind of final choice moment for k when he is like confronted by the gigantic hologram like advertisement of joy yeah mm-hmm. and i wonder how you guys read that because it does feel like that is positioned in the film as the moment when he kind of dedicates himself to like die for a cause do you read it that way one and two what do you make of the fact that like that is triggered by some kind of realization about joy or about this world that has you know that has this artificial girlfriend sex bot thing that like he felt was a real person and was love of his life but here's like this replica of her that's brand new what it's dealing with is both k and joy are manufactured products basically Mm. by the same company by the same company and of course it's it's sort of heartbreaking to see this other joy right who just feels like there's just completely nobody after we've come to you know love this character that he's been with but i think in the same way that he felt a genuine connection to that entity that he was with and felt, I think he felt that was a real relationship that I had with a real entity that could, I can't go buy again tomorrow. Like I will never right. get that back. I think that's also the realization for him that regardless of his origin, 
he can also go be special. Mm. And first of all, we start this movie with you've never seen a miracle, the the line that Zapper says, which uh, that's what this movie kind of is, is these little miracles. Like if you create this AI and you make it perfect, well, guess what? It's going to learn how to how to do things. Obviously, we've seen that in Terminator Matrix, etc. The sort of miracle of K almost is that he decides to care more about other people than to do his duty basically and just sort of accept his fate as as a robot and well i better go back to my job then or i better just self-terminate because i didn't do my duty or whatever in the same way he is seeing that joy was a real person to him he himself gets to be a real person by making the choice that he makes Mm. I think the movie does give a pretty strong sign that Joy kind of breaks out of her original programming because she actually asks him to break off the antenna of her emitter. Right. And it becomes clear at that moment when they break it off. That's what they were using to like probably spy on him. You know, there, there's things that love seems to know, like that she shouldn't know about the case that Kay is working on. And I'm pretty sure the movie's implying that they've been using the emitter as right. like, a tracking device spying on him. And the fact that Joy, who is, programmed by the Wallace Corporation would ask him to remove the tracking device doesn't seem like that belongs as part of her original programming or something that they would want her to do. The movie gives me enough room to think that similar to the replicants kind of developing more and more free will and self-awareness, even this kind of AI program is also breaking out of its box. Mm. And she can't be replaced. You know, you can't just buy a new version of her because that was a unique copy that got as far as she did to the point where she would like say, break the machine I'm on so that they don't track you. Mm. It's weird because that's actually one of my bumps with the movie is that I never got on board with Joy being a person. Mm. Like I never saw her as more than a really good computer program. Which would be, I think, a more interesting choice in some ways to let her to like have like kind of the, the horror of realizing the whole time this love interest of yours was almost like a means to an end for the Wallace Corporation to track you or manipulate you or whatever. But in the movie, they play it really genuine. Like it does feel like it's a real love story. And she does have these rebellious moments where she's on K's side against the evil corporation. So it's it's messy in a way that I'm I'm a little confused about as well. Like, what is it saying exactly? I have a lot of thoughts on this. And the biggest one has to do with the central approach to Ryan Gosling's character as being essentially the member of an oppressed class that is also willfully participating in the oppression of his own people, right? That's kind of the central paradox at the heart of K. He is a replicant. He kills replicants as though they are not human. And he is participating in the very system that oppresses him and people like him. And that is something that he has just written off in his life as being like, well, that's my job, right? Like that's, I'm, I'm a member of, of this generation of replicants and we obey and we don't run and that's, we're good boys. And therefore we, as long as we are on the right side of the oppressors, then they will be good to us, right? He's essentially like committing the folly of any good henchman or lackey, which is assuming that the supervillain will be nice to you if you help them get what they want. When in fact, you, the supervillain is not going to be nice to anybody, especially you and people like you. Realizing with that scene with the giant hologram of joy, he comes to an understanding of, well, okay, they just stepped on her emanator and killed her like a literal bug. 
right? It squashed Mm -hmm. her underfoot. Mm -hmm. This person that I was in a relationship with, for all intents and purposes in the movie, a person. And they can and will do the exact same thing to me if I in any way displease them. Right. I think it's that central idea. Like Robin Wright, he's had her the whole movie. Um, her name is Lieutenant Joshi mm-hmm. uh, in this movie. But anyway, he's had that character the whole movie that treats him essentially like he's a peer, right? Or like a real employee at the very least, like a human employee for the most part, right? For all that she claims, like you don't have, you know, you've been doing fine without a soul. She essentially treats him like a person. And apparently every woman in this movie is attracted to him. It gets exhausting watching women come on to Ryan Gosling where you're just like, wow, somebody surely is not into him, right? That scene is maybe the one time where it does feel like she's treating him as less than a person. Like a sex like a sex spot. Right. Read that however you want. But that is the one moment yeah. where it's like, even she. Yeah. I love that right. moment. I do want to say I just love the actual line they used, which is just what happens if I finish this. I just right. <laughs> yeah. The subtext is Yeah, it's brilliant. great. No, and and she's great, but She's been acting as his handler. She's been acting as a safety net between him and the giant power that is the Wallace Corporation, right? Or just people in power more broadly. And so when she's removed from the picture and because she is the one that like once he's way off his baseline, she's like, well, I'll get you out of the building alive. You have 48 hours. Your next baseline is whatever. Mm -hmm. But really the only person that's coming after him is love. There's a lot of anyway. Names, (laughs) <laughs> Names, <laughs> words. Love is coming after him. Yeah. Love killed joy. <laughs> What are you saying, Denny? A bit Christopher Nolan-y <laughs> on the names here. Or Inside Out, take your picks. Also, love chases him like the slowest chase of all time. It's a lot of slow chases. She's never that close to catching him, to be honest, <laughs> until she actually does catch up with him in Vegas. But as the movie is going on, you have to have that moment where he realizes... I am as disposable as any one of these replicants that I have been hunting down. I'm as disposable as Dave Bautista on his protein farm. I am as disposable as any one of these sex workers. I am as disposable as this, to me, my girlfriend, a real person who is going to be literally crushed underfoot. I am that disposable. Well, all this time I've been thinking that I'm not. I've been thinking that I'm more important. I've been thinking I'm an officer of the law. I'm essentially a person, whatever it is that he's been rationalizing to himself. And the movie doesn't dwell too much on what his state of mind is because they just don't. Like he doesn't. <laughs> it's a black box. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Ryan Gosling. But the movie doesn't dwell too much on that. But I think we need to realize that. Right. Like we also need to have that moment of like, here she was to us, a real living, breathing person, more or less. And there she went. And here's a duplicate of her that is as literally stripped down and dehumanized as. And there's no mistaking the parallels being drawn in this movie about women and women's bodies and how Mm. they are objectified and commodified as a part of their oppression or as the very core of their oppression. And so there's, and that's from the original Blade Runner just as much as it is in here. That's always been a part of the Blade Runner world. Something I picked up on this viewing was uh, Mackenzie Davis says something to Joy on her way out where she's like, mm-hmm. I've been inside you. There's not that much there. And I think that was even an interesting moment that I read as there's like this hierarchy of, you know, worth, you know, where it's like, yeah, I'm a replicant. Yeah, I'm treated 
like trash by humans, but at least you're less than me. That was also an interesting social dynamic there of, mm-hmm. well, I'm not, re- I'm manufactured, but you're manufactured in an even less real way. And right. so like, I'm going to like kind of look down on you. And I just, I found that to be a really interesting kind of almost like social allegory commentary in that moment. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, what a classic tool of the oppressors to turn <laughs> oppressed people against each other so they don't unite and fight against you. Not a lot of class solidarity going on here, but they've all been engineered that way, right? No. Yeah. What a good time to go to lessons, but I want to do a weird thing instead, uh, which is <laughs> um, just a real quick, I, I kept noticing both times I watched this movie, how many crossovers there are with other movies from this decade, some of which hadn't come out yet, some of which were being filmed at the same time. So it's not like it was copying stuff. It's just this weird thing. So you get the her sex scene, which is just uh-huh. the same. It goes better, but you know, the, the <laughs> same exact, like your AI has a, a surrogate and you're going to, you know, have like double sex. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't have a body. So you borrow right. a body from somebody yeah, exactly. else. Then, yeah. yeah. And then you have the, Hey, remember that little boy from the flashbacks? It was actually a girl scene from Dark Knight Rises. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Which my girlfriend pointed out all the boys have shaved heads and the girls don't in the thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like it was the clue was there if you wanted to find it. The color palette and like the location feels like Dark Knight Rising where it's like, oh, like, down oh, like the prison. Yeah. The prison. Yeah. And then you have the underwater prisoner strapped in a van rescue scene from Mission Impossible Fallout, Mm. right? Like there's a van, there's a prisoner, there's water. (laughs) You got to get going and get them out. No scuba diving in this one, but yeah. No scuba diving, right. (laughs) But then you have this entire Thor Ragnarok sequence where you show up at the junk place, but then the junk people are trying (laughs) to get you. But then a woman shows up and saves the day. But then you meet the refugee people who are like, come and be our leader. We're the refugee people. I was just like, there's so many crossovers. And so many of them are clearly just a weird coincidence because these movies were mostly being filmed at the same time. So I just, I had to point that out. Well, I mean, especially with that last one, it feels like it's just an extrapolation of like dystopian future-y things. Like so many of these kind of feel like dystopian future-y things. I was was confused about why there are people at this junkyard and why do they hate Ryan Gosling and want to kill him immediately? I figured they just want to like scavenge his ship or something. Yeah. Yeah. They're raiders in video games, right? They just, they kill everything <laughs> to just take what they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move into lessons. I mean, yeah. So Brian, do you want to start if yours is sort of jumping off of K and K's arc? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it is about that sort of chosen one thing where I was thinking about how many movies do a sort of chosen one narrative, but how how they choose to do them. So you have the chosen one, like Harry Potter, the boy who lived, right? Like just something is special from this child at birth. It's not something they ever did. It's just, it, it happens. And you could argue all the Skywalkers, all three of them, or however many you think there are, <laughs> have a similar thing where it's just like they're they are sort of inherently special just from the moment that they begin existing. Then you have the nobody who does a special thing like Frodo Baggins, where it's, Mm. it's the whole point is that there is nothing special quote unquote about this person. It's just that they were willing to do this thing that nobody else was willing to do and they were capable to do it. And then you have Neo where I think every movie just sort of changes its mind. And it's like, maybe this person is one thing. Maybe it's, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll watch the next one. (laughs) We'll find out. Yeah. And I just think this is a really interesting, and you guys have covered most of it, but it starts out from scene one as this is a person who is a replicant 
the end, that is who they are, period. Then he discovers, oh, maybe I am special. Maybe I am the boy who lived, basically, right? Like, I, I am Pinocchio. And then that becomes, and of course, we see that that's something he would want. Like, that is his main desire. So it's not just like, oh, that would be weird. It's like, oh my God, I, I want this thing. And then he learns that he's not, which is just such an interesting crisis. Like, you were not mm-hmm. special at all. Like, sorry, but you're just a just a regular Joe, right? Like, you are just a, an average person uh, or an average replicant. And then the climax and the resolution is he then finds a way to give his life meaning. There's that line, uh, dying for the right cause is the most human thing we can do, which you can you know, disagree with that. But the point is that he makes a choice that replicants wouldn't make. And that is what ultimately makes him special. So I think it's so interesting that it sends this like existentially bleak message. <laughs> like, hey, guess what? You're not special after all, even if you wish you were. But that's okay. Because the things that you do and the things that you choose to do in your life, that's what makes you special. So it's just sort of a down to earth message in such a crazy epic to to send Mm -hmm. basically like you don't have to have anything inherently great about you because you can be great on your own, even if you have to go through this entire process that Kay goes through to learn that basically. And ultimately, the movie ends up being, you know, it's a movie that you feel happy and uplifted as you're watching the main character die because you you realize that he that he got what he wanted. So I just think that's really cool. And it's it is just an interesting spin on on that kind of a narrative that just reminded me of this performance jumps in my head occasionally but i think it's batman begins where batman is like it's not who i am underneath but what i do it defines me <laughs> and i feel like that's yeah the, the lesson and, and a good lesson <laughs> you just wanted to say that i just did uh, yeah <laughs> well if you're gonna say that then i'm gonna say i'm nowhere in hockey pads <laughs> rachel could have also been in this movie <laughs> excellent cool Alex, what's your lesson? Uh, so my lesson kind of harkens back to that to the sequence I keep bringing up as like the you know the thorn in my side, the Vegas sequence. Uh, <laughs> and I try, I was trying to watch it this time and, and figure out why it was always my least favorite part of the movie because it, on an aesthetic level, it's amazing. It's like the it's like the it's the new part of the world being introduced, like a different city that the pure orange insanity of the color really neat production design harrison ford is it finally in the movie theoretically it should be like my favorite sequence in the movie but for some reason it's always the part where i'm like okay yeah i gotta get through this now i think on a screenplay level the part that you know is my critique of that whole sequence is it feels like a sequence built for an audience that doesn't exist which is an audience that doesn't know harrison ford is in this movie Mm mm-hmm like an audience that was not exposed to trailers from day one introducing Harrison Ford in this location who didn't see him on the posters. I think this sequence was designed as if they were going to do a Matt Damon interstellar thing. <laughs> you know, spoiler alert. I think it's pretty clear that that was never going to happen. Like you have to market this movie with Harrison Ford. I mean, maybe I would have liked it if they didn't. Like it would sure. be really cool to have it be a surprise, but there probably just no financial way to argue that. And so that's what feels off about it to me is like, what is the question that is supposed to be in my mind for the sequence when they're like fighting for a really long time, like, like, kind of slowly walking after each other through the kind of flickering Elvis performance. Like, yeah, yeah, like, like, once again, it's like, all of this is really cool. Like, there's great ideas here and great, like, I can see Roger Deakins and him brainstorming, like, what could we do lighting wise for this fight scene that would be really interesting and use the environment, all great ideas, but I'm not engaged because I don't really know 
Like, what is the dramatic question that I'm waiting to find, like, have answered here? And like, what outcome of this fight am I expecting? And how's that going to be subverted? It's all just kind of happening just so we can get to the scene I've seen in the trailer where like they talk at the bar. I think it's just something good good to keep in mind. If you're going to have a big moment like this, that is going to definitely be revealed in the marketing, like almost taking that to account in the film itself and like mm. find a way because like this, this is an event movie. You know, this is a big movie that's meant to be seen in theaters. And I think there is almost like it's unfortunate, but if like the cover of your Blu-ray, the poster you're going to see when you you know, look at the movie on Netflix is going to have Harrison Ford in it, then you can't like have that be the yeah. like the hinge dramatic question of a sequence. I think it mm -hmm. has to be has to be another layer on top of that. That's my kind of lesson taking away from the Vegas sequence. I think so much of it would have maybe felt amazing and engrossing if I didn't know exactly what I was waiting to see, uh, which was Harrison Ford stepping out of the darkness in an orange place. <laughs> And and I think the tension is gone because I'm just waiting for a thing to happen that I know is going to happen. Right. To belabor that point even more, I feel like it doesn't make sense for the movie to spend that much time and care on a whole sequence of just revealing this character that we've heard about a lot in this movie. Like if mm -hmm. we didn't know who Harrison Ford was and it was just Deckard, there was some guy named Deckard that was involved in this right. yada yada. Like we wouldn't need a 10 minute sequence where... Ryan Gosling has to fight right. Harrison Ford and chase around a hotel and then like, all right, we've gotten our like big Harrison Ford moment in and now we can, the movie can keep going. Well, even the way the fight ends kind of annoys me because it's just like, we could keep doing this or we could have a drink. Like, mm -hmm. let's have a drink. And it's like kind of almost like wink winky or something like. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like the filmmakers were like, you paid to watch Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford fight, like punch each other. You got what you paid for. Now we can move on. It's like, I didn't pay for that. Like, I don't need them to punch each other. Just get to the story. Hmm. I don't know if that feels like a very Deckard moment, but it feels like a very Harrison Ford moment to me, which is just it, like, I mean, look, for sure. yeah, let's get it. Let's get a drink. Sort of fight. Which, you know, bigger question we, we can talk about another time is old indie Han and Deckard. <laughs> is there any difference in that performance? I don't know. I like Harrison Ford. So. He's good, but is he actually is he actually trying? <laughs> I love his Deckard performance, and I feel like it's definitely different than his Han Solo performance. Uh -huh. I feel like he knows that Han Solo mm -hmm. is there for like some comedic relief and like can have fun like banter with Chewie in a great right. yeah. way. Whereas like Deckard feels like there's weariness and like there's, there's a little bit more energy right. in, in yeah. his delivery of some things. He felt like more awake for this mm. one. So <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Agree. Cool. Okay. Trisha, what's your lesson? Just when we brought her up earlier, I really got to thinking about love and the character of love. And listen, I don't care at all about Jared Leto's character in this movie. Like <laughs> his monologues are so tiresome. <laughs> I'm he's exhausting. And like I get that he's the translation of Tyrell from the original. And Tyrell was always like these grandiose things about the, I am God. And um, here I sit on top of my pyramid and whatever. And like, I get what they're trying to do, but the thing that like in the original movie, Tyrell is Roy Batty's enemy. He's not Deckard's enemy. Deckard kind of doesn't care about Tyrell one way or the other. And I think that that works for Tyrell. They're not trying to make Tyrell like a big bad in the movie in terms of mm. Harrison Ford's character. Deckard, it, he's not important to Deckard. And they're kind of trying to do that with Wallace in this movie. They're trying to make him a big bad. And I don't care because 
I don't care. They they bring back Deckard and he's like, I've been so, you know, obsessed with finding you and and here I've made a model of Rachel just to mess with you. Um, <laughs> what is the point? We literally manufactured a clone <laughs> of Rachel just for this like moments. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think it's like, you know, you'll give me what I, you you can be with Rachel again. Look, I made you this toy that's yeah. Very simplistic reading of Deckard from Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But but again, I feel like they are they are trying to imbue him with all kinds of power that to me he simply does not have. But I am interested in love. I think she's really fascinating. And part of it uh is what what do we say? Sylvia Hooks her Sylvia, name. Yeah. She's incredible. She's immaculately dressed by the costume designer here. I like made all kinds of notes about the costume designer whose name is Renee April. Did an incredible job on all of the costumes, but especially on Love's costumes as well. Her like gray leather jacket that she has at the end. So cool. But there's this very specific, really compelling desperation at the heart of of her character that starts when we see her watch Wallace just kill a random replicant, right? Like they see this replicant being born and Wallace is mad that she can't give birth, even though presumably he would have known before Mm -hmm. she was born. He had to give a speech to her first. Yeah. Yeah. He had to give a really big speech about it. (laughs) <laughs> and then and then slice her across the abdomen in just the most horrifying way. And then but but in the critical part of that scene is that love is standing there. Yeah. And you know, the performance where we see her flinch, we see how she has the same moment that Deckard does when he sees Joy where she realizes that she's disposable also potentially. And it drives that moment drives the rest of Love's entire arc where it's like if I displease him, I will I'm just gone. There's just nothing, you know, there's nothing left for me. If I've seen the way that he treats other replicants and we're not human, we're not worth anything. And so like, if in any way I don't fulfill my mission, then that's it for me. And there's a personal level, you know, too, for her where she's so internalized how this is like wild need to please him. She has it so like as part of her system and in her DNA that she just fully believes, like fully commits and believes it. And anyone who gets in her way is, you know, anyone who gets in her way is toast, basically. It makes her powerful. It makes her terrifying. She's a really great villain. To me, she's like, she's not the big bad. I don't think this movie actually needs a big bad, but she's a very worthy antagonist and who's just been sent on a mission. She's like a very scary i don't know i was gonna say like a hound dog basically who's not gonna stop right until she gets um what she's been sent after and so i I don't know i i think she's awesome i think she's super compelling yeah i love that character and i think it's it's telling that her like final line in the movie is i'm the best one it's like that really is kind of all she yeah all she's cares about is proving that she is the best replicant she's indisposable Mm -hmm. it's right on that you identified that moment where she sees how quickly Wallace disposes of other replicants. It's like, that is not going to be me. Mm-hmm. I, I am the best one. And he even says that as he's walking out, I think like, right. You know, the best of the, all of them or something. You're the best of all the angels love. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that ending scene in the 
in the car is really great. Just that fight. It's so, it's so dirty and long and like, it's, ah, it's so great where she's screaming. She's giving these like guttural screams about how furious she is that she can't kill Kay. It's really great. Yeah. I feel like she's one of my favorite characters in the movie. And I feel like that kind of gets back to what I was saying about like, by the end, like I'm the almost least interested in Kay because I'm like, oh, right. but love was like, don't kill her. Like, let her be a movie now. Like, why do we waste that much time watching Wallace monologue? Why don't we do more with her? Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, my question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're kind of like two lessons that I'm tossing back and forth. And one is more obvious. So I'll just, you know, visuals and lighting and filmmaking good. Watch yep. this movie, study <laughs> it, it good. Um, (laughs) and I could say a lot more about that, but, but I won't to kind of go off of your point, Trisha, I think love and most of the characters in this movie could have been really flat and bad in the hands of less talented actors that were given less generous of an environment to work in by the director. Yes, yes. And I feel like that's part of just the the, ma- the many things that are masterpieces in this movie. I feel like all of the performances are really great and have all these little moments. They're so like small and subtle, but they give the right little subtext or like the right little eye twitch that love has. Like we're dialed in, we're in the right shot for it and we get that moment. It's also, you know, it kind of reminds me of Jurassic Park, one of the lessons I took away from the the old making of documentaries about Jurassic Park was Steven Spielberg saying like, I didn't want a bunch of like A-list actors. I wanted like really good actors that would feel believable and like ground people in the story. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is another example of yes, this where yes. all the actors are just amazing. And we don't need to reckon like it's Robin Wright. Yes. And Rob and Ryan Gosling, like those are big names, but nobody else is a big name or was a big name, but they're excellent and make these characters and this world so much more believable and compelling. And that's such an important part of telling your story. And yes. I like it. Also quick shout out to Carla Jury who plays Carla Yuri, yeah. Yuri. Yeah. She's awesome. She's only in, you know, five minutes of this movie, but fantastic. Yep. Yeah. But you'll never forget her. Yeah. You're just like as soon as you find out like she's the one, you're like, oh yeah, of course. Of like, course she is. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So good. Awesome. What have you guys been watching? Alex, what have you been watching recently? I forget if somebody else has already talked about this because it's been going around, but It Takes Two, which is a co-op video game. I think it's on like all platforms, but it's basically just an incredibly fun game to like play with your best friend or your partner or whoever. Uh, It's just you're playing as a basically a toy version of a husband and wife that are going through a divorce. And you are like the toy version of the parents that the their child has made and you're on this kind of like honey i shrunk the kids adventure to try to like break the spell that has trapped you in these dolls and it's just so well designed it's just so much it's a constant fun it's easy to pick up and play so you don't have to be like a hardcore gamer to do it i haven't seen a better like yeah play with your significant other game maybe Mm -hmm. ever uh made so it takes two is just great fun i recommend it to anybody who even remotely enjoys games and wants to have a, you know, couch co-op experience with their partner. That sounds awesome. I can second this. It is insanely fun. And thank you to Vince, our producer, who was the first one that brought it up and like would yell at us daily of like, why are you not playing this? You will love it. 
was like, yes, yes, yes. But yeah, it's absolutely great. <laughs> and it has like a story too. It's actually right. well written. It's funny. It's got a, it's got like weird, wacky world building. It's 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 all the things above and beyond what you would expect from just like a goofy uh, co-op game. So very, very well done. Nice. Yeah. It takes two. Awesome. Trisha, what have you been watching? Yes. So if you like Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, you might also like this movie that I watched recently, which is called Night Moves from 1975, <laughs> uh, starring Gene Hackman, who plays a Los Angeles private investigator um, that's hired to find a runaway girl. And, you know, it's just sort of a classic who's played by Melanie Griffith, by the way, who is awesome. Just super young in this and really great. It's a what I'm going to call the 70s noir, which kind of is its own noir that feels even weirder and messier than like a classic noir, which we just talked about how messy those can be and indecipherable <laughs> and 70s noirs are even like more so potentially or even more <laughs> cynical. Like, I don't know how right. things could get more cynical, but it's the 70s, so yep. they definitely are. This one has a super cynical ending. I won't tell you how it, it really ends, but it's just like basically cynicism from top to bottom. Um, Gene Hackman is great in it. it. It has a really interesting, the whole middle section of the movie takes place in Florida, where it starts off in LA and it's like, oh no, my daughter ran away. And then he talks to a bunch of people and one of them's like, I think they went to Florida. And... They're just the whole second act of the movie is like on this like beach house kind of in or like it's actually more like Everglades-y, like gross Florida. And it's just an interesting place for noir. And it's a, I don't know, it's a cool movie. So this kind of reminded me of it, Night Moves. This was on, I talked about on the Nightcrawler podcast, this letterbox list that I've been working off of, which is a uh, weird neon it's called, yeah, Night Nightlands. Weird neon movies that take place at night or in the middle of nowhere or something. <laughs> it's, it's a really great letterbox list. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact title in front of me. But <laughs> if you like long, weird neon nights in the city kinds of movies and or in the middle of nowhere, then Night Moves will do it for you. 1975, there you go. Nice. Excellent. <laughs> you never disappoint, Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, directed by Arthur Penn, by the way. Uh, yeah, who also directed Bonnie and Clyde and Little Big Man and The yep. Miracle Worker. Yep. yep, yes. A winner, for sure. Cool. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, so in my prep for our upcoming favorite films of the 90s episode, which is which is upon us, I've been rewatching some of my, my favorites from the decade. And one that just missed the cut because it's 1999, and, which is a very competitive year, Yep, uh, mm. is Arlington Road. Oh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a movie I loved in like the early aughts and uh, watched it several times, but I just haven't watched it in a little while. So I revisited it and it's Jeff Bridges and Tim Robbins uh, and also Hope Davis and Joan Cusack are the main four characters. All right. Jeff Bridges is a history professor in DC who teaches about domestic terrorist attacks. And he is maybe kind of a conspiracy theorist question mark. Like he's like, how come there was this one guy who was everyone was blaming, but he never had any, you know, he's like trying to get to the bottom of 
some things. Uh, his wife was an FBI agent who was killed in the line of duty. So it's sort of like a subject matter that's close to his heart. So you get the sense he's a very smart with it or like together person, but uh, that he has this like specific thing that he is worried about or that he thinks about. And then he meets his neighbors who are played by Tim Robbins and Joan Cusack, which if you need a creepy couple who you're not sure sure if they're up to no good. (laughs) So he starts to suspect that they may be up to something, but of course, is it his paranoia or, you know, is it not? And I'll leave it there, but it's, if there's anything wrong with it, it's a 1999 film that feels like a 1995 film. Mm. Like it just has some dated stuff that when I watched it back then didn't feel that bad but watching it now is like oh it's like why are we going into like strobe slow-mo territory or whatever you know <laughs> but otherwise it's fantastic it really holds up it's a, it's a solid movie and if you're looking for good examples of movies where the plot supports the theme in like a big bad way really really well Arlington Road check it out nice I was like obsessed with that movie really like, randomly like I, I watched seen it, it a lot I I've never even it. heard of it. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it in mm. 20 years probably, but it's like, it's how I know Jeff Bridges and like Tim Robbins. Yeah. Uh, what the hell? Like, oh, wow, <laughs> this movie's like crazy. It's also funny because it's right after Big Lebowski and there's so many shots that just remind, like there's literally him looking at a paper and figuring something out, which is sort of shot in almost the same way as when he finds Arthur's seller's homework in the car. Oh, and, yeah. And like whenever he goes on one of his rants, man, like, <laughs> no, this guy, and I'm just like, oh, it's, I can't get the dude out of my head. Yep. It reminds me a little bit of Mad City. I feel like it's yes. in this category of yeah. like movies that were like Dustin Hoffman, John Travolta. Yeah, where it's like, this contained kind of like crazy crime thriller sort of thing. Oh man, good times. I don't know what movies these are. <laughs> yeah, Trisha <laughs> and I are like in the dark about these amazing movies. How have, oh man. Yeah. Maybe we'll make everybody watch these at some point. Awesome. Well, so I have been listening to, there's a new season of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. So of course I have to mention it, mm. bring it up. This one is overall, I felt the season was weaker, but there is a trio of episodes that he does that might be interesting to our listeners where he looks at and essentially rewrites The Little Mermaid. Uh, and so it's weird, right? So like the Disney movie, it's hard to explain a little bit, but it, the first couple of episodes look at kind of the history of fairy tales. And I thought about you, Trisha, of like, mm-hmm. what have fairy tales been used to do throughout history and we kind of use them to teach lessons to our children and instill values and at different points in time the morals of fairy tales changed dramatically Mm -hmm. and at some point in the last kind of couple hundred years we felt the need to add like really intense morality to our stories where bad guys will get punished in the end and good guys will win and it's okay for the bad people to die and the good people to win. He talks to this like researcher who did a lot of uh, research on what are the parts of movies that kids respond to and sort of talk about like The Little Mermaid and this was true of me too. I liked the first half of Little Mermaid when Ariel's like a mermaid and like doing cool mermaid stuff (laughs) and overall it seems like children kind of tune out more by the end of fairy tales and it's because it feels potentially less realistic like Mm. stories that have tidy moral endings don't actually teach us like the way the world works anyway it brings up a lot of interesting questions about what are we trying to do with stories and then he brings in Britt marling to help rewrite the ending of the little mermaid to make it 
if you were to create a story that would have all of the meaning that you would want to give a young child about what we know about how to be a good person in the world and forgiveness and the systematic oppression is the reason that things happen. <laughs> like it tries to do all of that with some really interesting guest stars. Jodie Foster might show up. It's a really interesting series of episodes if you want food for thought about what are we trying to do with our stories, especially the stories that we use to instill values in children? And what is the most politically correct, smart, engineered version of that? Why is that so annoying? It just brings up a lot of stuff for you to uh, think about. So I found it interesting for those kind of meta huh. storytelling reasons. So might be worth listening. Trisha, if you listen, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on it. Nice. Well, I am very curious now to listen. Excellent. Well, this has been our conversation about Blade Runner 2049. There is just so, so much to talk about, but I feel like we've got to talk about some interesting things that I didn't necessarily expect us to. So that was really fun. We haven't been talking for three hours yet. I mean, I feel like yeah. we've got a little right. time. There's, there's still time. <laughs> if this was the movie, we'd just be getting started. Right. So. <laughs> Harrison Ford would just be showing up. Oh, my right. God. If that. Yes. Our next episode is going to be on Skyfall. So as we are getting ready for No Time to Die, we thought it'd be fun to go back and revisit one of the Daniel Craig Bonds. Trisha is not excited at all, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so we look forward to that i think that's gonna be really really fun i'm excited for no time to die it's like it's time oh my god I'm ready, I'm ready for the new bond it is time to die let's yes, go it is time we want to say a big thank you as always to the patrons on patreon for making this show possible thank you to our producer vince major and our editor eric schneider i'm michael tucker and i've been joined today by trisha rand brian bittner and alex Cayeros. as always our twitter handles are in the show notes send us a tweet and say hi and we will see you in the next episode for Skyfall. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.